Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today's Q&A podcast where I'm answering questions that I receive via email and on Twitter. If you'd like me to answer any of your questions, feel free to reach out to me at valuestockgeek at substack.com, where I am accepting questions and will provide answers to the best of my ability. Also, I just want to mention this podcast and my Substack are ad-free and entirely user-supported. If you want to subscribe to the site, go to www.securityanalysis.org, valuestockgeek.com also redirects there. For subscribers, I publish a new company write-up every week, and I send alerts to subscribers on any changes to my portfolio. In this portfolio, I actually buy and sell the companies that I am interested in. And the purpose of researching a brand new company every single week is to build up a watch list of potential candidates for my portfolio. Subscribers also get access to my podcast. They get early access. Um, The episodes are released behind a paywall for a couple weeks. Then they go wide after that. Well, that's it for my little commercial. I will now go on to the questions. So the first question is, does dividend investing make sense? So the chief argument against dividend investing is that it's better to have the money compound over time tax deferred. So better uses of capital would be reinvesting the money within the company, finding better investment opportunities, and compounding that over time. They would also look at it as buybacks would be a better use of capital because that's also tax deferred, even though they have introduced a tax on buybacks, but it is at a lower rate and it should be tax deferred over time. So from a purely academic perspective, there is no difference between selling principal, getting paid a dividend. And from an academic perspective, they would prefer that the company compound over time. And then when you need money, you sell it down rather than waiting for the dividend to arrive. That's uh a more tax efficient way of doing things. From a taxation perspective, the longer that taxes can be deferred, the better. Better to have money compound over time rather than pay taxes right away. Dividends are taxed when they are paid. So a better use of capital from a tax perspective would be for the company to buy back stock. Best example of a stock that doesn't pay dividends and has a fantastic outcome for investors is Berkshire Hathaway. So Berkshire never pays a dividend, and it's constantly reinvesting, finding new opportunities, um, acquiring businesses that offer attractive rates of return, and Warren Buffett also buys back the stock when it is cheap. But the problem, of course, is that the vast majority of companies are not Berkshire Hathaway, and they're not led by a capital allocator like Warren Buffett. So most companies don't have that many attractive investment opportunities, and they lack the skill to identify them. So that's a chief problem. Obviously, if there's a company that can reinvest capital and earn, say, 20, 30% returns, then they should absolutely do that instead of paying dividends. But most companies don't have those kind of opportunities. When they invest cash flows in a new project, they often wind up doing silly things. Good example, this is Coca-Cola, where Buffett got involved. Coca-Cola was buying movie studios. They were getting involved in a bunch of things that were way outside of their core competencies. In the 1960s, companies formed giant conglomerates that combined and did a lot of stupid things that weren't really related. And then in the 1980s and 1990s, they tore all of those conglomerates apart. And uh, it would have probably been better for those large 1960s conglomerates to simply return the capital to the shareholders. 
Another big argument against dividends that I touched on briefly before is buybacks. So buybacks, in theory, are the same thing as dividends, and they're more tax efficient. The problem is that many companies often buy back stock at expensive prices. So they typically have a lot of cash flow and business is very good, and they use that cash flow to buy back stock. The problem with that is that when business is good, usually the stock is expensive. Then cash flow dries up, the buybacks stop, and often that's when the business is most attractively valued to buy in the market. If you're going to buy a company that buys back stock, what I typically try to make sure that they do is that they do so consistently. So if they're buying back stock consistently, including during recessions, including during downturns in the business, then it basically amounts to dollar cost averaging. They're throwing away money at times. Sometimes they're buying back stock when the stock is expensive. But if they're doing that consistently at a similar rate for 10 or 20 years, they're also times when they're buying back stock when it's attractively valued. So in the end, it evens out and it results in a good outcome. The ideal scenario would be a company that can systematically buy back stock when it is cheap, as Buffett does with Berkshire. But that's a pretty rare situation. Most companies don't have a really good handle on the valuation of their, of their business and what's really a good time to buy back. So while the arguments against dividends make total sense, make total logical sense, buybacks are better, better to reinvest capital, and selling down principal is the same thing as getting a dividend check, that doesn't completely hold up in the real world. Buybacks aren't always done in a judicious fashion. Companies don't always have attractive opportunities for investment. Dividend companies also tend to be very exceptional businesses. So if you find a company that has been able to grow dividends consistently over time, chances are that that's a really good business. Capitalism is brutally competitive. Most businesses get competed away over time. But a business that consistently pays a dividend, particularly a business that can grow its dividend over time, it's usually a sign that this business has some kind of moat that resists competitive forces. So if they have been doing that sort of thing for a long time, it's a sign that you're dealing with a business with a moat. It's also a sign that you're dealing with a business that has some recession resistance. So a company that can continue to pay dividends through multiple recessions probably has some good recession-resistant characteristics. They've been through some stuff, so you know that they have seen some bad economies and have been able to survive. You don't have to worry about them falling apart as soon as we enter the next recession. So dividends are a sign that you're probably dealing with a good business. It's not a guarantee that it's a good business, but it's probably a hint, probably a business that is resistant to disruption, it's a business that can deliver a reliable return to investors. A good fund that prioritizes dividends for at least like 40% of the portfolio is Vanguard's Wellesley Fund. So if you look through a list of those holdings, which are basically moody dividend paying stocks, you'll find a lot of great businesses. And that fund has delivered a fantastic result over time um, since the 1970s for investors. Another good example of a dividend investment vehicle would be Schwab's dividend ETF, SCHD. So that has basically kept up with the S&P 500 since inception. But surprisingly, it does so with lower volatility. The fund owns far less stocks than the S&P 500 itself. And I think that's a good example of how the businesses are probably stronger. If um, Even if it's held in a very concentrated portfolio, it can basically get below the standard deviation of the market. That's probably a sign that you're dealing with some high quality businesses. And of course, a more direct way to get at that sort of thing would be to just own a low volatility fund. But all of these things are basically hints that you're dealing with a high quality business. 
It's also worth noting in this discussion that a large portion of the market's return comes from dividends. I've seen many different estimates. Um, Hartford funds is on the high end. They estimate that 69% of the total return of the stock market is attributable to reinvested dividends. So that suggests that uh, dividends are fairly important sources of returns. For me personally, I look at dividends as one thing to look at in the toolkit when you're looking at a stock. It's not the end-all be-all of investing, but when you find a company that reliably pays dividends, it's a hint that you're dealing with a good business among many other factors. And then I also prioritize total shareholder yield. So I really like companies that also consistently buy back significant amounts of stock. So I agree dividends are less tax efficient and buybacks are better, but I tend to look at both things and look at total shareholder yield when I'm evaluating a stock. I also want to note that while I think that looking at these dividend companies makes a lot of sense, I think that it's a good area to look at when you're looking for high quality companies. My view is that just focusing on pure dividend investing doesn't make a ton of sense, like saying you're going to go out and form a portfolio of 50 consistent dividend payers. Like I mentioned earlier, there are funds that can do this for you now. You don't have to go out and construct a giant portfolio like that when you could just click a mouse and buy SCHD. And buying SCHD probably makes more sense than going out and buying 50 dividend paying stock. But hey, you do you and you can invest in whatever kind of company that you like. So the next question, what advantages are there to having a portfolio that grows 7% with 3% dividends versus 10% growth? So obviously this question is very similar to the question I just answered. Ideally, you want a company that can just grow by 10%, particularly in a taxable account. When you get paid the dividends, you have to pay the taxes on them. And it's better to have a company that can compound over time like Berkshire Hathaway, where you can defer those taxes and then have the company continuously compound. Um, now, I mentioned in the last question, as I mentioned in the last question, there are many companies that can reliably grow at 10% a year, which is why I also look for situations where I'll get a portion of the return through shareholder yield. Shareholder yield is also more predictable than earnings growth, but theoretically and ideally, the company that doesn't pay the dividend and can compound at 10% is better than the company with the 7% growth and the 3% dividend due to taxation. And the next question, I have trouble reconciling my belief in a low consumption minimalist lifestyle with my financial future being dependent on stocks which are in turn largely dependent on high consumption and materialism. Any advice? So I agree that the two are at odds. A key driver of performance in equity markets has been high consumption and materialism. I'd go on further to say that it's a driver of civilization itself. So Charlie Munger, rest in peace, he actually touched on this briefly in one of the recent Daily Journal meetings. He said, who the hell needs a Rolex watch so you can get mugged for it? yet everybody wants to have a pretentious expenditure. This, that helps drive demand in our modern capital society. My advice to young people is don't go there to hell with the pretentious expenditure. So on one hand, he's saying that things like this drive demand in the capitalist society and propel our civilization forward. The story of human civilization is basically unlimited wants and human devising ways to satiate those wants. So over time, things that likely seem completely pretentious frivolities right now will eventually become part of baseline human happiness. So think about like all the inventions of the last 150 years, the automobile, the television, telephone, someone 
in the past would look at all of these things as completely frivolous expenses, but now they're all just a part of our standard lifestyle. My view is that there's nothing really wrong with materialism. And I agree with Munger that it's pushing our civilization forward. I realize there's an environmental argument against it, but I argue that we're actually getting more environmentally sound over time as a result of capitalism. If you look at energy expenditures, for instance, as a percentage of GDP, they continue to go down as the economy expands. And then just from a purely like uh, pollution standpoint, cities 150 years ago were wretched, disgusting places. The roads are basically filled with sewage. People often died young from ailments related to this. The cities were filled with smokestacks. The air quality was very bad. People were developing terrible lung conditions related to this. So, I mean, while we have new kind of environmental concerns like climate change and that sort of thing, from like a pure pollution standpoint, I would say that capitalism and advancing civilization is making the world a cleaner, less polluted place. And many of these things are basically fixed by capitalism, by civilization moving forward. I mean, think about it. Once upon a time, people probably looked at plumbing as a pretentious luxury, like, oh, this guy is so fancy, he can't be bothered to go to an outhouse. He needs like a porcelain throne within his house with running water. Like they might have thought of that as some pretentious, frivolous expense. And now it's a basic part of how we live. So I don't really view any of this materialism or any of this stuff as uh, unethical. I think it's what drives humanity forward. And I think that capitalism drives humanity forward and makes the world a better place over time. So I don't see any of this as unethical. Now, talking about the second part of the quote, avoiding wild luxuries is more about saving money and accumulating capital. So you need to resist the impulse to continuously increase your lifestyle. And basic math is you want a comfortable buffer between your expenses and your income if you ever want to accumulate any wealth. So you have to resist this impulse, but it's more about accumulating money and developing a nice margin of safety in your life. And it's less so a moral judgment. That's how I look at it. Next question is, how much of accounting does one need to know to invest on their own in equities? Also, your path to mastering accounting book course experience. So I majored in finance in college and I took accounting classes. With that said, I don't really think you need that to succeed in investing. There are plenty of free resources and books where you can learn about accounting on your own without having to go to college for it. Some of the books that I would recommend, Ben Graham wrote a great one. It's called The Interpretation of Financial Statements, where he goes over the basics of reading financial statements in a very clear and concise fashion. Unlike security analysis, this is a quick little read. It's 144 pages. And I'd say that's a, a great starting point to learn some of the basics about accounting and looking at financial statements. Um, another book that I really love is Why Stocks Go Up and Down. So that's written from a more modern perspective. Despite kind of the goofy title, I like the book because it takes you through a hypothetical business and it talks about how different events impact the accounting and the financial statements. So it's not like presenting here's what the cash flow statement is, here's what the income statement is. It's creating a real business and then it's taking you through that um, and it's explaining how all these different events impact different events on all the financial statements. And it also goes further and takes that into an investing perspective. It talks about how the statements can affect the company's value and potentially the stock price. So unlike a lot of investing books that are very heavy on theory, I just like this book because it's a very practical guide to accounting principles. And I'd say that's another great book to consider. Um, next question, what are your favorite podcasts and why? 
So I have a few podcasts that I listen to when they release new episodes. One that I really love is Risk Parity Radio from Frank Vasquez. I've had Frank on this podcast and I thought it was a really good episode. Um, he covers things from the perspective of an ETF investor who's looking to kind of minimize volatility, particularly for retirement-oriented portfolios. Um, he not only gives great insights, but he frequently roasts the financial industry. Um, and I always enjoy that when he does that. He's right that so many people in the financial industry are selling you something, and you should always have that in mind when you're listening to anyone from the financial industry. Um, he also mocks forecasters, which I also think is funny. I really like the podcast because he goes very in-depth when it comes to specific investment strategies. He also, just a warning, he frequently posts sound clips throughout the podcast. I think they're funny, but they're not everyone's cup of tea. So I recommend checking that out. Um, when I actually am in the mood to listen to some forecasts from the financial industry, I like to listen to Odd Lots. Um, they always have some very interesting guests. They usually have insights into the macroeconomic issues of the day. Just keep in mind when you're listening to forecasts from guests on the podcast, they're often wrong. Um, and you shouldn't touch your portfolio when listening to some macroeconomic prognostication, including when I have people making macroeconomic prognostications on this podcast. It's one of those things that's fun to talk about. It's a good um, framework to think about some things, but you know, don't necessarily want to act on that. I like the investors podcast, particularly those with Stig Broderson and William Green. I like that they've separated the Bitcoin stuff from the rest of the podcast. I'm not really into the Bitcoin stuff. So I like that I can now look at their new episodes and know if it's going to be a Bitcoin heavy podcast or if it's going to be a traditional finance podcast. The episode I enjoyed most was a great conversation between William Green and Chris Bloomstrand. So Bloomstrand, he's a very fascinating guy. He has a very impressive track record. And that was that was a great conversation to listen to. Really enjoyed it. Um, I also like the business brew. So Bill Brewster often has um, very interesting guests on from all kinds of different perspectives. Um, my favorite episode that he did was one with Arnold Vandenberg. It's a must listen from a guy who's lived a very extraordinary life and has a very interesting perspective. Um, Value After Hours is another great podcast. Um, I enjoy the conversations with uh, Tobias Carlisle and Jake Taylor. They often have great guests on there too. And they're available live on YouTube at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Tuesdays if you want to ever watch and comment live. And they will um, often respond to your comments on the air and talk about your questions. Um, Masters in Business is another great podcast from Barry Ritzholtz. I don't listen to every episode. I'll often scan the new episodes to see if it's a guest I'm interested in, but often he has some great ones. Um, some of the best episodes are with Michael Lewis, um, who wrote The Big Short, and he also has some great quality episodes with Cliff Asnes. Founders is another really cool podcast. Um, the host of that one, David Senra, he does an episode every week about a biography of a business founder, and then he shares his key takeaways. A nice thing about that one is that I often use that podcast to preview books to decide if I'm interested in actually reading the whole book. Um, if it's a biography that really captures my interest based on his overview of the topic, I'll often go out and pick up the book and check it out. Non-finance related, I often listen to podcasts about old movies. Um, the two that I really like are Unspooled and The Rewatchables. Um, so if you're into movies, I recommend checking out both of those. And then I also listen to the Borsa Earnings Call app a lot to listen in on earnings calls for companies I'm invested in or interested in. So that's a lot. So I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, I pretty much have a Bluetooth headphone in my ear most of the day. I listen to them when working, cooking, doing laundry, walking, working out. So I'm pretty much always listening to podcasts, which is the reason I'm able to uh, consume so many of them. 
So what changes, next question, what changes between accumulating assets and spending? So I'd say if you're young and you're accumulating assets and you can handle volatility, you want the highest return portfolio possible, which is probably going to be something like 100% stock. So but let's say you're 24 and you just started working and you saved up $10,000 in your 401k. If that gets cut in half, it's not really a big deal. You only lost five grand and you're going to be working for 40 years anyway, and you're going to keep pumping money into the portfolio. So significant drawdowns aren't really a big deal. And uh, you should probably cheer on drawdowns when you're that young and you just started investing and you don't have enough money where the drawdowns are really going to impact your life in a major way. Uh, but as you get older and richer, drawdowns are going to get more serious to handle psychologically. I noticed that when I saved up my first $100,000 is when I really started to become aware of the volatility a lot more. So a 20% move on a $100,000 portfolio is $20,000, which is a lot of money, especially when you're basically saving $20,000, $30,000 a year. You're up to that ballpark. Now you can potentially see swings in your portfolio as much as you can save. Um, and that's when things start to get a little difficult. So, you know, serious bear market on a $100,000 portfolio could take that down to $50,000. $50,000 is a lot of money to lose in a year. Um, so big week in the market can equal what you're making in a month. So at that point, I understand if people want to reduce risk in their portfolio. But at that point, it's more about psychology. It's more about staying invested. No strategy is going to work if you abandon it when it gets scary. Um, so it's really more kind of a personal question. How much volatility can you actually handle? What's going to keep you from selling out? Now, when you're older, it's not just about psychology. Now it's another ballgame. So when you're getting close to retirement, it's not all about psychology. Like you want to be able to have a good, safe withdrawal rate. So the thing there is that the withdrawal rate matters more than the rate of the return in the portfolio, which tends to confuse a lot of people. But you can have a portfolio with a lower rate of return that has a higher safe withdrawal rate because it's less volatile. So when you're approaching that stage, you really want to consider safe withdrawal rates. You don't want to enter a situation where you're 65 years old, you retire, and then the market crashes by 50% and you lose half of your life savings. And that would significantly lower your safe withdrawal rate over time. So I would recommend checking out some lower volatility portfolios because they can tend to support higher safe withdrawal rates. A good example of that is the permanent portfolio. That can support a safe withdrawal rate of 5.4%, uh, while the total US stock market can only support 4.2%. Next question, what conditions favor value versus growth? So if you look at the data, small cap value tends to deliver a positive, decent return every single decade. Uh, large cap growth goes through these booms and busts, decades where it does 20% kagers, and then there's lost decades like the 70s or 2000s. So over the long run, the kind of steady decade by decade, like 10% return from small cap value tends to deliver a better result than that kind of boom and bust cycle that you see in large cap growth. So I think a better way to frame this question would be what drives bull markets for large cap growth and what causes flat and sideways markets where value tends to perform better. I wish I knew the answer to that question. I know it's not economic growth. Growth was actually slow in the 2010s when U.S. growth stocks performed incredibly. And then the best economic growth that the U.S. ever experienced was the 1940s. And um, value actually performed better back then. 
some say that it's about interest rates or inflation. High inflation is better for value stocks. High interest rates are better for value stocks. But inflationary environments with high rates, it's a mixed track record there. So that's mostly reliant on what happened in the 70s, which was an inflationary decade where value stocks did well. But it also doesn't make a lot of sense there because the other great decade for value was the 2000s. And that was a pretty low inflation and interest rates were declining the entire. So I think that that's just extrapolation from what happened in the 1970s. I don't really think we know what causes that phenomena. I think it's kind of like asking someone why they're in a bad mood. Like It's unpredictable why markets get into these conditions, get into these different moods. If you're talking to an individual person, they can be miserable when everything is going right for them. They can be in a great mood amid bad news for them. And at the end of the day, markets are human constructs and they're driven by human emotions. And we're constantly trying to assign scientific ideas this event will cause this condition in the markets, but it usually doesn't work that way. There are times when we're, there are just times when we're very enthusiastic about growth companies. And then there are times when that wanes, the stocks go down, people get cynical about growth stocks. If you go back to like 2010, I'd say people were very cynical about growth investing after the 2000s. They had, still had fresh memories of the internet bubble. And then there were obvious growth stories that were going on at the time. Like it was clear that Apple and Google had a lot more runway, but People were still skeptical about it because they remembered what had happened with the last growth boom. Um, and it's just unpredictable when these moods are going to shift around. Uh, next question, why do you like Deere here? So I recently bought John Deere. Um, I think it's a fantastic company. I believe that the business has fundamentally changed. So in the past, it was a pretty good but very cyclical business. They're selling heavy machinery. That's inherently cyclical. They're selling the farmers and the construction industry. Both of those industries are very cyclical. But I noticed that Deer is now getting more recurring revenue through maintenance and software. The tech is also getting much better. And I feel like if farmers want to stay competitive, they need to continually upgrade their equipment more if they want to stay competitive. My concern around the stock is mainly around the agricultural cycle. So I may be entering the stock at a very bad point in the agricultural cycle. But with that said, I'm comfortable holding on to it because I think it's a fundamentally good business. And I think it's at a decent price right now. Next question, any updates or updated thoughts on the weird portfolio? So the main changes I've made with the weird portfolio is that I started buying up the Avantis funds in addition to my Vanguard holdings. When I wrote the book, I didn't know about AVDV. Um, that's Avantis's international small cap value fund. I settled for just international small caps as a category because I wasn't aware that there was a specific small cap value international ETF fund available. And Avantis has now made that available. I've also started buying their global real estate fund, AVRV, instead of um, the combination of VNQ and VNQI. So overall, I'm fine with the structure of the weird portfolio. The specific asset allocations make a lot more sense, but I've started to add more vehicles to the mix. And I've been using the Avantis ETFs to do that. Um, I'd like to get some Avantis people on this podcast because I think it's a great firm. I like their funds because they, in addition to targeting like value stocks, they also have a nice profitability and quality filter in there. And uh, the ETFs trade with pretty attractive expense ratios. Their lineage is from Dimensional. So that's a very great classic firm that has a traditional small cap value tilt, heavily influenced by Fama and French. And I like these ETFs that are coming out. Not really a huge deal in the grand scheme of things. Like I haven't actually sold any of my Vanguard ETFs, but 
as I've been accumulating money in the portfolio, I've been adding these Avantis products. Next question, worst investment ever. So I've had a lot of very bad investments. Looking through my portfolio journal, one of the worst was a turkey ETF that I purchased in 2017. So I bought it around $42 and I did it because it had one of the lowest CAPE ratios in the world. Well, the uh, situation got a lot worse and it wasn't as cheap as it looked on the surface. 2018, there was a crisis with the Turkish lira and I wound up losing over 50% on that investment. Now the ETF trades around $36, still below where I bought it, significantly higher than where I sold it. So across the board, I handled it poorly. Um, and my main takeaway from that was that I have no business speculating in um, indexes or individual stocks in countries that I don't know anything about. Uh, another bad bet I made was Manning and Napier. They're an asset manager. I bought that back in 2016. I sold it a year later. I lost over 50% on that one. Another one I bought just mainly because it was optically cheap. It had a low PE, trading near book value. What I failed to understand was the extent to which active management is in secular decline. They were losing AUM as more investors shifted to ETFs and passive products. And uh, the main thing I learned from that one is avoid stocks that are in a state of secular decline. That's why that's an item on my checklist. If you have something that is in secular decline, uh, it's better to just avoid it rather than trying to trade around it. Um, these things, they can make for good short-term trades. Like there are times when sentiment is so bombed out, um, they can still have a nice bump beyond that. But I don't think I'm a particularly good trader. So I prefer to simply avoid them and don't buy businesses that are in a state of secular decline. Next question, um, kind of similar vibe here. How do you identify a value trap? So, I mean, my entire move in the analyzing modes and business quality was about avoiding value traps. So in my experience, the worst value traps tend to be industries in secular decline among companies with poor moats, highly cyclical. So that's why I analyze companies on my Substack, And it's all about trying to avoid those situations. I'm trying to find high quality companies that have moats and can deliver a strong return across an economic cycle to basically avoid a value trap. Um, most of my checklist that you see me run through with every stock is all about avoiding value traps. I want a business with a moat, recession resistance. I want to make sure it's not in secular decline. I want to make sure that it's returned a decent return for shareholders over time. I want to make sure that it has financial quality and low debt. I want to make sure that it consistently generates returns that exceed it cost of capital. All of these things are tools to avoid value traps. So a business that checks all of these boxes for me is unlikely to be a value trap. And that said, I'm still going to buy some. There's still going to be some businesses that I buy that meet all of those criteria that turn out to be value traps. But I think by doing that consistently, I can greatly minimize um, the number of value traps that I buy. Um, so that's it for today. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed answering these questions. If you have a question that you want featured on one of these episodes, just email me at valuestockgeek at substack.com. Um, again, hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you have a great day. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.